0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Spoke Zarathustra, A Reader's Guide. First of all, I'm sorry, it's been a while since I've uploaded anything. A couple different things came up in my life the last couple months, and this being one of the more luxury items that I get to spend time with in my life, it was also unfortunately one of the first things to be jettisoned as I tried to figure things out, so my apologies. I am excited to be back, Uh, I have no intention of stopping recording this podcast until we get all the way through this book, and we're about 10% of the way now, it's been about a year since I first started recording, I'm hoping to pick it up, but the best laid plans of Mice and Men off go awry, so we'll make it through, Um, I'm going to enjoy the process, hopefully you guys enjoy the process, and hopefully you continue to find it informative and interesting. So, that being said, thank you for listening. My apologies again on the hiatus, but I am not going anywhere, come hell or high water. So, where are we? Today's episode is on chapter 5 of the first book, called Enjoying and Suffering the Passions. And in this section, Nietzsche will talk a lot about virtue. He'll talk about the things within us that make us excellent. The characteristics, the draws, the passions that reside within our souls, within our hearts, within our very being that can guide us and direct our action and allow us as human beings to invest into the world value. And the value, as we will see, is something that is very much within us that we paint into the world and that things in the world become meaningful because of these virtues and these things that are so deeply innate within our souls, within our hearts, within who we are, that the world attains value because of our human being and who we are. And in the last section, Nietzsche spent a lot of time talking about mind-body duality, how since the time of at least Descartes, who was the first really to formalize this, but certainly This idea is latent in Christianity and Platonism that there is a split between our minds and our bodies, that our minds are the realm of reason and logic and language, and that, at least according to Plato, these are the faculties that make us great and make us humans and separate us from the animals and allow us to understand the divine, the world behind the scenes, the thing in itself that when we comprehend the world using our bodily faculties that the adjectives and words and categories of reason that exist within our heads can then are the only way that we can access the world of god that by seeing something that's green by seeing something that's tall by seeing someone that's courageous we can then ask ourselves the question what is green what is height what is courage and we we at least according to plato Only by using our minds can we access the actual qualities of reality that individual instances that we see in front of us of things that are green, things that are tall, people that are courageous, take part in. That really the important thing is this platonic ideal of green, of tall, of of courage, and that everything else that partakes of it is a mere paltry instance of it. And so in the previous section when we were discussing mind-body duality, Nietzsche basically says, this is all crazy, guys, this makes no sense. Mind and body are, are are one thing, and mind is something that is of the body, that the body through time invented and developed for itself the spirit, it developed for itself the mind as a creative outlet, as a hand of its will, that it, it's all about the body, and that reason and rationality are useful but they're not the be-all end-all of reality unlike what plato christianity descartes thought and humanity has thought at least in the west for thousands of years that our mind is what's holy our our mind is what separates us from the animals our mind is what's the most important thing about us whereas really nietzsche sees the mind and reason and rationality and language as useful tools that help us in our day-to-day life but they are not the the master by which all decisions should be made, by which all judgments about the world should be made, by which value judgments should be made. And there's a couple reasons for that that we went into. One, the rational scientific mode of thinking is by definition bereft of value. That when we're looking at things and trying to objectify things and see things from an objective perspective and taking out subjective concerns, uh, comparisons in science are made with reference only to physical measurable qualities. So what's the mass of this thing? What's the height of this thing? What, what frequency wavelength of light is reflected off of this and gives it whatever particular color? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? And science in this rational mode of thinking is very Nietzsche would describe it as a gray way of thinking. There's no value there. There's no way to tell whether it makes sense to rob people or not. That there's no way to tell whether you should be a good and loving person or a bad and despicable person because there's science and rationality don't allow themselves to think that way. Uh, It's the famous David Hume problem that from any is you cannot derive an ought from any statement about reality, in a rational sense, there's no way you can derive a what should I do with that from it. That from rational statements about the about the universe, we cannot take ethical statements about what to do in light of that. Uh, and we got into some other things about rationality that, you know, if you're trying to make all your decisions, your human decisions in a rational way, that can often get very, very complicated very, very quickly, that you know, if you want to be as rational as you can be, things will be as complicated as you want them to be. So if you're trying to decide what to eat for lunch, uh, if you're trying to be rational and not listen to your body and what your body wants, you might just come up with uh, three different criteria by which you judge the decision. One, cost. Two, nutritional value. And three, taste. But there could be other criteria that you're ignoring. There, there are so many variables going on in life that we don't know whether we should take into account or not, and we don't know how they interact with other variables. So maybe you should include how the animals are treated. Maybe you should include where the food is sourced from. Maybe you should include how the, the farmers are paid for their produce, uh, where you're getting it from. Maybe you should consider uh, your own health conditions maybe there's some interrelationship between all those variables. And and you can see that if you're trying to make every decision in life based on rationality and reason, it it becomes very hard to calculate and you can become paralyzed in life with even very simple decisions. Uh, Or, if you want, you can also be extremely ignorant in making your decisions by basically doing the flip side and believing that you're being rational and you think that you have all the facts and that You know, these seven variables are the only important ones and therefore we got to take this plan of action. But then because you didn't consider maybe how some of those variables interact or maybe you're just plain wrong, uh, you could be making the wrong decision. And we've already seen in this book uh, an example of this sort of character. Uh, So you'll remember the jester uh, from the prologue who went up behind the tightrope walker and tried to jump over him. And coming from a very rational, bitter place was saying, oh, uh, the overhuman is coming and uh, humans should be jumped over. We can just uh, get rid of these people, get rid of the struggle and just artificially create the overhuman. And Nietzsche's point uh, that he makes a couple times in the book is that's incredibly stupid that human life and human society is so complicated that at any point in time, we don't actually know what's needed next, that we don't know what types of humans are needed next, that we don't know specifically what the overhuman looks like but its emergence will be the result of millions and billions of people trying trying their hardest to develop themselves and then an interaction between all those people within a culture within an environment that then leads to the emergence of new cultural patterns new forms of of interaction between people the emergence of new patterns of behavior new codes of ethics things like that that if you're trying to rationally plan all this stuff out in a laboratory, it would get way too complicated way too quickly. So that's some of the problems with rationality per se. Uh, some of the problems that we find when we're dealing with words, for example, and we talked about this last time as well, is that uh, when we have a word, you know, Plato would say, oh, when we have a word, we have a, a sort of cipher into the, this world behind the scenes. That we have a cipher into the nature of God and the nature of reality. And when we say the the say the word flower, we, we understand something fundamental about the universe and we can worship how amazing that is. However, as we described, there's a couple of problems with that. One, you're tricked into believing in the homogeneity of things. That when I say flower, I might be picturing something completely different than what you're picturing. And what we're basically doing, according to Nietzsche and later Wittgenstein, is we're using a very low resolution word that is more used for action, human action, than it is for actually understanding something about the universe. That, you know, I'm using the word flower to tell you to go do something and move that flower or look at that flower or cut that flower. Um, And that when we use this word, we completely ignore the differences between flowers in our heads. So when you talk about dogs, you talk about flour, you talk about courage, you talk about humans, you talk about whatever, that using a word and collapsing uh, a category of real world phenomena that are beyond your comprehension in terms of their complexity or what they actually are or what they actually mean or what their qualities are by condensing it into one little noise that you're making with your mouth, you you tend to trick yourself into believing that you actually understand something about reality. And and you tend to give everything in that category the same characteristics, the same qualities. Whereas anything within a category, unless you're talking at like an atomic level or a molecular level, everything within a category is extremely different. So humans are different, dogs are different, flowers are different, uh, types of courage are different. And so this overemphasis on language and trying to use language in a rational way and uh, learn things by focusing on words and categories is, is a mistake and it can lead you astray. Uh, and another big thing that words do is they make you think that reality is static, that by thinking of the word flower, you picture a flower. But you don't picture what that flower actually is, which is a continually moving process through time. I mean, if you look at it on a quantum, molecular, atomic level, this flower is never really stationary. That even things that you think are stationary are never really stationary. That really, in order to understand what that thing is as best as we can, we have to track the genealogy of it, so to speak, or or the, the evolutionary... Or, lifespan view of what that thing is. And there's no real clear way to distinguish how far back you should do that. So, for the flower, for example, it might make sense to say, okay, well, the flower starts as a seed. And then, if that seed's planted somewhere and given water and nutrients and sunlight, that it will sprout out of the ground, bloom, uh, spread some pollen, and then wither away and die. And really, when you say flower, you're picturing a sort of two-dimensional slice through time or a three-dimensional slice in time of what this flower is at this particular second, whereas really the flower is that whole process. And even then, you could you could extend the timing backwards or forwards in time basically to infinity, uh, where the seed, the, the carbon and nitrogen that makes up that seed was thousands of years ago, billions of years ago, Um, trapped in rocks or it being cooked up in some star somewhere. And then a billion years from now, God knows where the hell the actual components of that flower are going to be. So it's very difficult to actually use words to think that we understand something because A, we don't, and B, it makes us think that the world is a static place rather than this place of continual movement, continual flux, continual growth. Even even things that you see as being static, um, rocks, dirt, the atoms within there, at least according to the best that we know about quantum mechanics, are they're not solid, stuck atoms. They're wave particle sort of blobs that move through time. And they even when they're in a solid form, they're shaking and it's energy basically moving through time. And right now it might be in a static formation, but Maybe through the next billion years, through wind and water erosion, the granite in this mountain over here turns into soil, which then turns into a flower. And so you start thinking, well, the carbon and magnesium and whatever that was stuck in that rock is now, it used to be inorganic, but now it's part of this organic thing. It's, it's hard to tell. And so Nietzsche, in the last couple sections, talks about rationality. He talks about language. He talks about the categories of reason. He talks about the 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 mistakes that we make in our heads in our psychology if we take too seriously the concepts that we've come up with the the categories of reason rationality and how we verbalize these things with words and so basically he's trying to in this next section say okay unlike what people thought with christianity where you know we're going to believe in this world behind based on this platonic fetish of believing that the universe is solely this good entity that cares about us, uh, which seems to, in many ways, be a religion created by very suffering people, people who are very sick and have reason to cast doubt on this world that we're living that's filled with pain and suffering and anguish and evil, Um, that we need a better way to make decisions about life, that we shouldn't be getting our values from this weird, platonic, Christian way of thinking about things. But then similarly, we shouldn't be only getting our values or our ways of thinking about things from rationality, which is the sort of enlightenment idea that, okay, we're not going to care about this world behind the scenes and all the weird value judgments that come from looking at things in a religious way. Let's look at things scientifically. Nietzsche sees again, like, this is still just rationality and words, and, and we're, we're missing something important. We can't get value from these things. And Nietzsche basically, in the previous section on, De- on the despisers of the body, says that it's the self that we need to look to. It's the sum total of our biology. It's not just our minds, and it's not just our instincts. It's the combination of both through time in, a, in an ever-growing, ever-building way that the source of value of things comes from humans, that humans put value into things based on our biology, which is in some form hundreds of millions to billions of years old, Uh, And our rational mind is a relatively late addition. And so he's saying that we need to look to our human drives, our evolutionary drives, the life within us, and use rationality as a tool to support that and build upon that. And in this next section on enjoying and suffering the passions, Nietzsche basically describes what it is within us that guides our behavior, that interprets things in reality in a way that gives them value and basically the word that he uses for that thing within us is virtue and as we'll see this virtue and the development of that virtue across cultures within individuals within family trees is something that is internal to our hearts internal to our souls and it's something that the spirit this relatively new addition to the human experience can work with to best figure out how to propagate into the future and so 10% of the way through this book and Nietzsche's already blown through thousands of years of psychology thousands of years of valuation and a couple different gigantic worldviews firstly the platonic worldview Secondly, the rational enlightenment worldview where everything needs to be rational. And he's basically trying to give the appropriate alternative that seems to be best backed up by Darwinian theories of evolution or Lamarckian theories of, of evolution. But more importantly, this, this concept of the universe as a moving place that's the development of the will to power. So with all that being said, I hope that I've caught you all up giving you a bit of a refresher of what we talked about the last couple episodes. With no further ado, we can get into one of my favorite sections on enjoying and suffering the passions. My brother, if you have a virtue, and it is your virtue, then you have her in common with no one else. Of course, you want to call her by name and caress her, You want to pull at her ear and amuse yourself with her and behold now you have her name in common with the people and have yourself become one of the people in the herd with your virtue you do better if you say inexpressible and nameless is that which is torment and delight to my soul and is even the hunger of my entrails too May your virtue be too lofty for the familiarity of names. And if you must talk about her, be not ashamed to stammer about her. So speak and stammer. This is my good. This I love. Thus it pleases me fully. Thus alone do I want the good. I do not will it as the law of a god. I do not will it as a human statute and need. Let it not be a signpost to over-earths and paradises. It is an earthly virtue that I love. There is little cleverness in it, and least of all, the reason of everyone. But this bird has built its nest with me. Therefore I love and cherish it. And now it sits here upon its golden eggs thus shall you stammer in praise of your virtue. At one time you had passions and called them evil, but now you are left with only your virtues. These have grown from out of your passions. You set your highest goal in the heart of these passions. Then they became your virtues and sources of joy And whether you were from the tribe of the violent-tempered, or of the lustful, or the fanatical believers, or the seekers of vengeance, in the end, all your passions turned into virtues, and all your devils into angels. At one time you had wild dogs in your cellar, but in the end they transformed themselves into birds and delightful singers. From your poisons, you brewed your own balsam. You milked the cow of your sorrow. Now you drink the sweet milk of her udder. And nothing evil grows out of you anymore, except for the evil that grows out of the conflict among your virtues. My brother, if you are fortunate, you will have one virtue and no more. Thus you go more easily across the bridge. It is a distinction to have many virtues, but a hard lot indeed. And many a one went into the desert and killed himself, because he was weary of being a battle and battlefield of virtues. My brother, are war and battle evil? But necessary is this evil. Necessary are envy and mistrust and calumny among your virtues behold how each one of your virtues is covetous of the highest place she wants your whole spirit that it might be her herald she wants your whole strength in wrath hatred and love each virtue is jealous of every other and a terrible thing is jealousy Virtues, too, can perish through their jealousy. Whoever is ringed about by the flames of jealousy will at last, like the scorpion, turn the poisonous sting against himself. Ah, my brother, have you never seen a virtue slander herself and stab herself? The human is something that must be overcome, and therefore shall you love your virtues, for by them Will you finally perish? Thus spoke Zarathustra. So Nietzsche in this section doesn't give a large explanation of where these virtues come from. He leaves that for a little on later in the first part of this book, chapter 15 on the thousand goals in one. And so I'll talk a bit about that later. But essentially, Nietzsche is trying to suggest that virtues are these passionate facts about us that are so important to us that they, they give us something to aim for in terms of how we behave in our day-to-day lives. And there, there's a multiplicity of reasons that these things exist and where they might come from. But for now, Nietzsche just focuses on what these things are, what it's like to have them, how they develop through time, how they, in a sense, are beyond good and evil, that they start as these evil, passionate things, but that they then turn into nice, good, beautiful singers. And he talks about how virtue is not just something that anyone has, and that different people have different virtues and different numbers of virtues, and a lot of people may not have any virtues at all. And again, I think it's important to note that Nietzsche doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad if you don't have any virtues. Uh, Just like the jester would say, oh, virtue is a good thing, therefore we want more virtuous people, so kill everyone who doesn't have that special thing about them. That's not what Nietzsche is saying. And all those genocidal interpretations are not the way that you should interpret this book. Human life is so complicated that we never know exactly what's needed next. Virtues generally take a long time to develop within a culture, and virtues being something that are so fundamental and so important to us and can certainly define the way we approach things, they, they can lead to very extreme situations where in your desire for development along the paths of whatever virtues happen to define you, you may not be the most useful person in every situation. That For the mass of mankind, you're going to need only a few extremely courageous people. You're only going to need a few extremely funny people. You're going to only need a few extremely creative people And if everyone was extreme in some way, you may not be able to get everything done that you need done. That there's a vast group of people that you just need in a society to keep the lights on. So when Nietzsche starts off this section by saying, my brother, if you have a virtue and it is your virtue, then you have her in common with no one else. He's pointing to that fact that not everyone has a virtue. And then secondly, that not everyone has the same things in common, that these things are unique. And touching on something that we've talked about before, about the homogeneity of words, Nietzsche makes this point again, that he says, if you have a virtue, you have her in common with no one else. And if you need to speak about her stammer, otherwise you have her in common with the people. And the way that I interpret this is that if you have a virtue... If you have one of those things that just is within you and is so strong and such a strong guide for your behavior and that you care about a lot, say you're a funny person and you really value humor, your virtue might be classified as being humorous, that you have this strong desire. It guides everything you do. It guides so many things. When you were a kid, you just had to be the class clown. You loved the idea of making people laugh. But if you're talking to someone, trying to describe your virtue, saying that you're a funny person, um, it's very difficult to get across the uniqueness of that, that every person, if you have a virtue, a set of virtues, they're so unique and they grow up in such a unique environment with different influences on them, your family, your, your childhood experiences, your cultural experiences, what's valued by your family and your culture that you, your humor might be completely different from someone else's humor. That maybe maybe you've dealt with some pretty rough things in life and you've developed a relatively dark sense of humor as a way to cope with it. Uh, maybe you had a relatively nice childhood and you, you just like knock-knock jokes. Maybe you're into slapstick humor. All these things are so different and they're colored in so many different ways that just describing your virtue with a word, it's such a low level of granularity as to what that actually means that Nietzsche then goes on to say that if you are going to speak about who you are and what's so important to you in terms of your development, how you see things, what you care about in life, be not afraid to stammer about her, that these things that define us are often so close to who we are and we don't really think that other people get it, that we should stammer about them, that we should revere the things that are so important to us and and put so much stock and value into them that when we talk about them, we we shouldn't be afraid to stammer that saying that, you know, I really value humor and I I have a dark sense of humor because I had this particular set of experiences and humor has been so important to me and I just live and die by it that not only are these virtues so unique to us but they should be so important to how we see life what we value in life that we should be very careful when we talk about them and further uh, Nietzsche goes on to make the point that these are they're not anything given to us by God they're not anything that should be made an absolute priority of humanity that these are very human things and they work for us they're our virtues that it's not based on any platonic way of thinking that, oh, you know, humor exists, therefore everyone has to be funny. No, it's, it's very much individualistic. And Nietzsche definitely sees it within a broader societal context, a community context, an individual context, that these virtues emerge and the people who are driven by them are important examples of that virtue. And that furthermore, these virtues As important as they are to us, they're important for society generally in different ways and that they don't develop necessarily in a straight line. So in the next section here, Nietzsche describes that. He says, you know, at one time you had your passions and you called them evil, but now you're left only with your virtues. These have grown from out of your passions. You set your highest goal in the heart of these passions. Then they became your virtues and sources of joy. And so again, this is something that I love about Nietzsche, and I've I've found this to be very useful for myself, that in the course of developing, you know, being a younger person and you're trying to figure out what to do in life and how to behave and how to orient yourself towards the world and what matters to you, uh, when I was a kid, I definitely enjoyed being the class clown. There's something so cool about making people laugh and being inappropriate and having fun myself. And... For a variety of reasons, I enjoyed it. Certainly, it has helped me in difficult situations. I always try and find the humor in in dark situations so that at least I can somewhat enjoy the pain that I'm going through. But these passions and these virtues develop through time. And what will start out as sort of a desire to make someone laugh that will guide your action. And if it is a virtue, if it is something that you're passionate about, When you fail in practicing that virtue, say you try and make a joke and the timing sucks, or it's an inappropriate joke, or you you get the wrong audience and you say the wrong thing, or you screw up the timing, you screw up the words, whatever it is, If, if that thing being funny is not a virtue of yours, if it's not something so deeply held within your heart as being important to you, at this sign of failure and if you fail a couple times you might just get tired of trying you don't want to put yourself out there and so then you just stop trying to be funny but if it is a virtue it's something that defines you and it's something that you'll be so passionate about that you're willing to deal with failure in the aim of trying to become funny or whatever the virtue is and so if you're a kid and you're making these jokes and they don't go well you're gonna feel bad, you're gonna feel terrible, and you're gonna feel rotten about yourself. You might feel rotten about the world, you might feel angry towards other people that this thing within you, this desire to be funny, if it's not honed properly, you're going to start seeing the world in a negative way when you fail. And you're gonna think that these things are evil, that, oh, I wanna be funny, but I suck at it, and, oh, these other people suck, they're not laughing at my joke. You can have a negative attitude towards these passionate things about yourself But Nietzsche here, quite rightly, points out that these things, if they are virtues and you stick with them, you'll get better at them. And through time, these passions that you called evil will become virtues and sources of joy. So when you're a kid and you screw up making the joke because it's bad timing, then you're going to think pretty hard about it if you care about humor. And the next time you make a joke, the timing will be better. The delivery will be better. Your understanding of what's funny will be better. Your understanding of what audience likes what sort of humor will be better. And through time, you can develop this sense of humor. You can develop this virtue about yourself and become good at it. It's similar to what we heard in the first chapter of the actual book. The, the spirit of the camel taking all this stuff upon itself in order to master it and then eventually overcome itself and become, through the spirit of the lion, the spirit of the child, where you're becoming creative, and maybe maybe you know you're a comedian at this point. Maybe you're you're coming up with new ways of making humor, new jokes, new new funny insights. And you become sort of a human example of what it means to be a humorous person. And that's something that society looks up to. It's something that other people who like the virtue of humor will look up to. And you you push humanity forward in that direction, that you've taken humor a couple extra steps, or you've taken courage a couple extra steps, or you've taken honesty a couple extra steps, or you've taken friendship a couple extra steps. Whatever the virtue is, if it's something that you really care about and it really defines who you are, when you initially start out on the journey of trying to learn what it means to have that virtue and what it means to live according to that virtue, There's going to be failure, but through time, as you learn how to deal with the failure and you orient yourself more and more towards these virtues as a direction of how you should act, how you should think, how you should behave, your ability to operate in the world according to that virtue will get better and better. And so I really like this section because often I'd be having issues. Uh, where, you know, I'd feel terrible about myself. And whether it's something I said wrong, or I did something wrong at work, or I did something wrong with a friend, or I said something at the wrong time, I didn't know how to behave, I would feel absolutely miserable about myself and kick myself and think myself to be a rotten person. But reading Nietzsche and understanding that, you know, I'm a human being that's developing through time according to some specific interplay of how my virtues are developing within myself, it sorta gave me respite from the short-term suffering and kicking myself to be able to realize, okay, this still does suck, but I'm learning. Uh, In the future, I'll be better at this. In the future, I'll be funnier. In the future, I'll be better at being honest. In the future, I'll be better at being a good friend. That these negative experiences that we often hold ourselves to account for too harshly are painful learning processes that through time you'll only get better at. And how Nietzsche ends the section, I really like, where he talks about having one virtue is, is pretty good, that it, you'll go more easily across the bridge that, you know, if the only thing you care about is being funny, if that's your virtue, then every situation that you're in you'll be looking at mainly from the perspective of okay how can i improve this situation by being funny and that by doing so by becoming a funny person you're pushing humanity closer to the overman you're you're extending human capability along this one axis and that's really good but it's simpler than having many virtues And that it's a distinction to have many virtues, but a hard lot indeed. And that many people who've gone out to the wilderness to kill themselves just were weary of being a battlefield of virtues. And that when you have many virtues, if along with being a funny person, you want to be an honest person. And along with being an honest person, you want to be a good friend. And along with being a good friend, you want to be a courageous person. That if you have multiple virtues, not only is the development of each of those virtues take longer than just having one virtue because you're not just thinking about what does it mean to be funny? How do I master timing? How do I master word choice? You have to do that for every other virtue. What does it mean to be honest? What does it mean to be a good person? What does that mean? What does it mean to be courageous? When should I be courageous? How should I be courageous? It's not just the individual study of those virtues and criticizing every action that you take in light of one virtue, but you have to then understand how those virtues interplay with each other and given a specific situation how to best comport yourself in the light of the fact that you're being guided by so many different guiding lights so to speak so if a friend of yours is having a particularly upsetting time in their life a stressful time if you're a funny person it's sort of the same thing, if if all the only tool you have is a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. If you're a funny person, you're going to try and approach things by being funny with that friend. And maybe that's how you comfort the friend. And that's great. It's better than nothing. It's better than having no virtues to offer. But if you're funny, and you're honest, and you're trying to be a good friend, and you're trying to be courageous, it becomes much more difficult to understand how to help your friend because there's more options. Maybe some of it's good humor, but maybe some of it's being honest. Maybe your friend's done something wrong and you need to tell that friend and that's what honesty demands. But maybe being a good friend in that situation means cutting them some slack and holding back on the honesty. Maybe being courageous suggests that you go and help that friend, take some of their stress on yourself. And if you have multiple virtues, the risk that you'll screw up any situation increases because instead of just being able to make a joke or not make a joke you have so many different alternative paths in front of you and combinations of how you coordinate these virtues together that it makes things much more difficult to perfect and Nietzsche points out that all of these virtues fight for the highest place in our spirits that. Our minds are a constant battlefield between what is more important than what. In what situations is what more important than what? When does courage take priority? When does honesty take priority? What is most important? And that it's very difficult because if you have so many things that you revere and that you dedicate your life towards and that exist within you that demand expression, that demand elucidation, that demand development of your personality and your skill sets in the service of, it becomes very difficult to decide what is more important, when to use each one, how to develop each of them, and how to use them in concert with each other. Because you're, you're trying to use a certain constellation of virtues together in dealing with the world rather than just one, or rather than none. So as I said, this, this section has been very important to me. It, it really put into context a lot of the struggles that I dealt with and a lot of a lot of the self-blame that I would put upon myself and a lot of the responsibility I'd put on myself. Uh, it, it gave me the language to understand that what I was doing was, was essentially that I was trying to develop a couple of virtues all at the same time. And that not only is the development of one virtue a painful act, because you're making mistakes, you don't know how to do it, but you're so driven by desire to be whatever that virtue is that you keep going through the pain. Not only just that, but that multiple virtues are sort of tugging at you at any given point if you're if you're a multi-virtued type of person. And that's a very difficult thing. And I love reading Nietzsche, and we'll come across it many times, that a lot of the short-term pain that we're feeling can be explained if you take more of a long-term human development perspective on it. And so I really like Nietzsche and his discussion about virtue. I think he's much better than Aristotle, who basically said that you need to have these 10, 15 Athenian, Macedonian virtues, and that's that. I think that he's putting everyone into the same mold And while, you know, there's a certain benefit to being composed like a Macedonian nobleman, maybe that's not your thing. And maybe because of whatever particular virtue is more natural to you, you should follow it rather than following what someone else tells you to be. And I think that's a really smart way of thinking, that human society is such a complex thing that a lot of the answers for how to behave and what to focus on exist within us. And if you look at a situation, any situation in life that you experience, and there's a pull or a draw or something seems to spring up within you in terms of a reaction to that situation, you should follow that. That when, when a situation sets itself up for a great punchline and you just want to jump on it, that's, that's your body telling you that you care about humor that when something is going wrong and you're at a party and someone's saying something bad about someone else and you feel terrible about it and you want to tell the person to stop talking that way that's honesty or that's courage or that's being a good friend welling up within you and those feelings are the indication of the self of our, our body not just our rational thinking but our body telling us how we feel about a situation and you can tell in those instants what's meaningful to you That those situations had an emotional value for you that you care about and that you should behave in a way where you take advantage of those situations and try and behave in the right way in order to resolve those situations in a way that seems acceptable to you. That when that situation lines itself up for a great joke and you care about that, you try and make that joke. And if you fail, feel bad about it, but figure it out so that next time When that situation arises, instead of shying away from it and feeling bad, you're ready to take it on, and you're pushing humor forward, you're pushing yourself forward, you're developing, you're getting better. And as Nietzsche says in this section, whatever your virtue is, whatever your body seems to be reacting towards in the world, try and interact with it the best possible way, deal with the failure, but you'll get better at it through time, and it will become a source of joy for you. will become a source of meaning for you and as you interact with your life in this way where you take these emotionally effective instances that call out to you and you deal with them and you try and get better at them not only will you enjoy your life more not only will your life be more meaningful but life will much more likely be more meaningful and more enjoyable for the people around you you'll be more successful people will like you more and everything will just be better so I really like this section. I think that he really, after having set up in the previous chapters, the ways of thinking that humans have clung onto for the last couple thousand years, he presents a very thoughtful and interesting insight into the source of value being a biological thing, that it's something that emerges from the self, that rational thinking can indeed help inform to think about what it means to be funny, what it means to be courageous, what it means to be a good friend, and to analyze situations where you may have failed to figure out how to do it better, but that the main driver of value and the main driver of what we care about is the self, and that the mind, rationality, is all in service to the much more profound wisdom and reason of the self and we're only 10 percent of the way through the book but i think nietzsche has already in that short amount of time compressed so much information that is so valuable not just to our lives but to human life in general as we continue to develop and continue to expand our capabilities as the human expression of the will to power um This section has been extremely valuable to me in terms of putting into the right context some of the things I've felt, putting into the right context and giving me the language to describe some of the more emotionally affective things that have happened to me in my life and how I felt about things. Um, It really is a great section. So I know we've gone through quite a bit of complicated information the last couple chapters. I do apologize again for the time delay in releasing this episode. Uh, And trust me, we're not out of the woods. (laughs) This is a complicated book. It's a very profound book. And we're going to have a lot more of this sort of stuff coming up. But at least for the opening couple of salvos fired off by Nietzsche in the last five chapters, I think he's really set up a much better way for humans to orient themselves towards reality To understand why we feel the way we feel about things to understand what gives value to life it's not rationality it's not science it's something about human being and it's something about these virtues and as we get into the rest of the book we're gonna understand a bit more about what happens when these virtues go go awry or how these virtues develop or how they develop over the course of eons throughout time throughout human history and how they express themselves in different areas and what happens to human beings who who don't believe in these things and behave in other ways, behave as if rationality is more important, uh, behave in a bitter fashion because they didn't follow their virtues and they're now just bitter because there are people out there who are better than them and, and get more out of life than them. This is a very profound book and... There's a lot of great information here, and I appreciate you guys listening. So with all that being said, I'll wrap up here, and I'll talk to you in the next section. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you know anyone who you think might like this, your friends, your family, your loved ones, coworkers, anyone who you think might be interested in the message, feel free to share with them very helpful to me, very helpful to the show, and gets out some of the hopefully good ideas that we're trying to spread. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, very hateful things to say, you can reach me on my website at alexdrake.ca. I'm also on Twitter at, at AlexJDrake. Um, feel free to subscribe in iTunes, Rate in iTunes. Anything you can do to help the show is great, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks.